We are going on tour. The Glamorous Trash Podcast and my book tour have collabed and we're coming to a city near you. Click the link in the show notes to to get all of the deets. We're coming to New York City. On June 4th, we are kicking off an event with Jon Stewart. No big deal. That's our very first show in New York City. Then we're coming to Washington, D.C., Nashville, Chicago, Santa Fe, Albuquerque, Seattle, Portland, and Los Angeles. So get your tickets now. We are doing three different events because, you know, I'm always doing the most. That's just on brand, right? First, there's a glamorous trash party. It's the podcast meets the book tour meets Coachella, a live show featuring podcast segments, book segments, a very special guest. And of course, there's a runway walk at the end for people to show off their fits because the dress code to every event is obviously glamorous trash. We are also doing a cookie country club. It's the anti-country club country club. And it's very dreamy. You get like a bunch of products. There's little events. And it's a more intimate event where you meet other cookies and listen to a book chat with what me and another special guest. And then the final event, the Behind the Bangs Writing Workshop. I finally did it, put it together, put together this workshop because I wrote this book in many ways for younger me. And younger me would not have gotten off her couch unless there was also a workshop being taught. I wanted the gyms. I wanted I wanted the knowledge. I wanted the education. That's what I would have wanted. So I've decided I'm doing it. And in the workshop is going to be the six writing gyms that took me forever to learn. 15 years. In my 15-year career as a TV writer and author and blah, 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 all the other things I've written, there are six things that I always use, and all of those are in this workshop. So if you have an interest in writing, sign up. All the ticket links are live today. Click the show notes. Click my Instagram. We are coming to a city near you, and there's going to be some meet and greets. I'll sign some copies of books. We'll give out more books, and I have uh, some pieces of merch that I'm taking on the road, and I'm going to give them out at the shows. Welcome to Celebrity Book Club. This is a podcast that recaps and celebrates the memoirs of female celebrities. I'm your host, Chelsea Devantes. I am a TV writer, I'm a comedian, I'm a filmmaker, and sometimes I'm in stuff too. And this is our very special yearly bonus episode. We did one last year, and you guys, here we are again. This is the Cookies Call-In episode, where cookies have called in with questions, hot takes, insights. We're gonna play some of those calls. I'm gonna respond to them. I also ran some uh, Ask Me Anything questions on my Instagram. I'll answer some of those. And if you listen to last year's episode, you may remember that I, well, if you don't, I'll be like, what? I shared <laughs> the saddest, worst story from my life. Uh, um, and not only that, it was a story I had struggled with sharing my whole life. It was something I kept um, pretty close to the chest and uh, it was really hard. And to get to a point where I shared it took, oh, just so much therapy, but also this podcast where spending the year talking to you guys and talking to you on Instagram and on the Facebook group and reading these women's stories where like every book they're talking about how facing their trauma and their shame heals them. I was like, I want that healing so badly. And I shared and it really did change my life without exaggeration. It's like, yeah, it was, sharing that episode is one of the most monumental things in my life because I just feel so much better and lighter and happier. And um, I'm still processing a lot of stuff and, you know, things still get dark, but uh, I feel like I've begun to see the light. 
So this year, I decided I will share another mini memoir episode. However, it has been such a wonderful year having moved through or moved with some of the trauma I've been struggling with in my life um, that I want to share a funnier one, a happier one, a lighter one. I made this promise last year. I am here to deliver. So at the end of the episode, I will share a lighter mini memoir episode. But for now, let's get to the cookies because some of these hot takes had me rolling with laughter. Hey there, this is Carrie. I'm a longtime reader of celebrity memoirs, and I've come to the conclusion that there is always at least one trash man in these books that has an impact on the woman's life. In terms of the books that the podcast has covered, John Mayer is one of them. And last, this book doesn't exist yet, but I'm really looking forward to Brittany's memoir, and I hope that she reads to fill her whiskey tango family that's been treating her like an ATM for all these years. Thanks for all you do. Love the podcast. Take care. Bye. Carrie, I love this. Uh, you are absolutely correct. There's always one trash man, usually several. And now going forward in the podcast, I will call out our new segment, uh, the trash man of the book. Um, I am also looking forward to Brittany's memoir. However, um, you can tell from her Instagram, she is really, really, really in it. And I really hope Brittany is working with a trauma therapist and finally gets the support system that she's deserved all these years and hasn't had because she's going through it, you guys. But when she writes those Instagram captions, whew, the book she is going to give us, I cannot wait. It will truly be our Super Bowl. Okay, let's listen to the next voicemail. Hey, Chelsea and Kate, it's Maria. I like to talk about how cool Jane Fonda is. I love how passionately she stands for what she believes in. Before the pandemic, she started protesting. I can't even remember what something important to her. What caught my attention is that she was arrested multiple times for it. And some of the protesters who joined her were also arrested. And she brought them water and snacks and hugs after they got out of jail. And they came out feeling exhilarated. And Jane was so proud of them. And I just like to say thank you to Jane Fonda for being who you are. You truly make me want to get arrested. <laughs> that is such a beautiful love letter to Jane Fonda. Instead of you make me want to be a better man, it's you make me want to get arrested. Um, Maria, hi, hello. We know each other from the private book club for the higher tiered cookie patrons that we hold once a month. I love this insight and I have some insight of my own to add. So um, Jane Fonda actually knows that when you protest the Capitol like that, you just always get arrested because it is illegal. So you can actually schedule your protest with Jane Fonda. Um, not, not that, I don't know if we can schedule it, but um, I do have some celeb friends who were like, yep, I'm going to the protest on Friday where I will inevitably be arrested with Jane Fonda. Um, so you can see uh, probably, there's probably a couple celebrities every Friday doing it. So listen, you guys, maybe as part of our year-end cookie trip, we'll hit Dollywood and go up and get arrested with Jane Fonda. Okay, let's listen to our next voicemail. Hi, Chelsea. My name is Julia. I have been listening since Jessica Simpson episode, and I love it, I love it, I love it. Thank you for everything that you do. My question for you, I would love to hear how your thoughts on femininity have changed since before you started doing the podcast to now. I love everything about the way that you express yourself as a woman and as somebody that 
hasn't always loved my own femininity. You give me a lot of aspirational uh, kind of belief in, I don't know, honoring your own femininity. So I would just love to hear how your perspective has changed reading all of these fabulous female memoirs. I love you and I can't wait to hear your thoughts. Bye. Oh my gosh, Julia, thank you. Uh, that was really so beautiful to hear. Okay, so how my thoughts have changed on femininity since before I started the podcast. Julia, they have only fortified <laughs> everything I thought I believed as true. I, I'm just like so deeply grounded in it. So before the podcast, I had gone through a journey with my femininity where through drag, I learned how to harness femininity as... <laughs> let's say, a weapon. And I don't mean it classically as like, ooh, femme fatale, but I do mean it as like, you're so feminine that you're that it, it's there's strength to it. I think we've taken characteristics that we all want to have as humans, like being strong, being powerful, being loved, being respected, being smart. And we've attributed those characteristics to masculinity when they are in femininity as well. And there is nothing I love more than a full face of makeup so strong that the person is aghast. Uh, they're taken back by these things that we have said are weak but are actually quite strong. So in reading all these memoirs, I think it has just opened up my eyes to all the ways you can express your femininity. And I also just want to say, like, this is just not tied to gender at all. Like, any identification in this world as who you are, you still can express femininity and you can express masculinity. And I just think through the books, I've seen so many ways to be a woman that it has given me the freedom to just be the specific type of woman that I want to be, which just happens to be a complete psycho. I mean, my God, I think I directed my short film in a crop top and a giant bow, and I'm just not going to have it any other way. And I know, you know, not everyone is still ready for it, but even doing this podcast has given me the power to really stand strong in decisions like that. And I will also say this weekend, I had, um, I had a bachelorette party and I was talking with some friends at the airport who are in this business about feeling afraid to post things like, you know, we were wearing some crazy shit. We were wearing like fringe bathing suits and like, you know, diamond boob expressing river outfits. We were wearing a lot of weird shit. <laughs> it's on my Instagram if you follow me there. And they were talking about how like, oh, I'm afraid to post this because of the people who could hire me could like think that like maybe I'm like not funny or strong or smart or I can't lead a room or I can't direct a film and like, so I can't put stuff like that out there which I think like has truth to it, but it did make me very grateful for this podcast and the decision I made a long time ago to only go so far in that direction that um, I'm not afraid to do it. If anything, I feel uh, emboldened to be like, fuck you, I will wear this and I'm gonna be your boss. <laughs> um, so Julia, thank you so much for your question and, and I really loved that. Now let's take a little break. I'm going to answer some questions that I got on my Instagram when I did a little AMA, Ask Me Anything. So first, Woot Woot Wooting sent me so many phenomenal questions, and they were all so good that I'm going to answer a couple of them. Also, I love your Instagram name, Woot Woot Wooting. Um, okay. Favorite kind of fast food? Taco Bell. Hardcore, hardcore Taco Bell. Um what appealed to you and Yasser about getting married? Okay, I like this question because we really went back and forth on it and I always promised myself I'd never get married. So it's really been a journey, but 
Um, my friend, Jenny Hagel, actually gave me phenomenal advice where she said, um, don't underestimate what it feels like to bring your entire community together for a, a big moment in your life. And I haven't had the wedding yet, but I did just have uh, my bachelorette party. And like, wow, I really underestimated like how powerful and beautiful and like, like an impactful moment in my life was like having all these women together in the room. And the second thing, there's three things that influenced our, our desire to get married. The second one was um, separately, you guys, separately, both our therapists had said to us that is, even though weddings can feel very stupid, that it would be, if we were interested in it, it would be momentous to celebrate um, just how far we've come in life to have found each other. Um, and for me personally, and Yasser shares a lot of similarities with me, like there was, I mean, for most of my life, like I didn't know how I was going to pay for groceries, like let alone a wedding. And to have like put in the work where I can even afford to um, pay for a wedding, like feels like such a, a momentous accomplishment. And sometimes I still feel really guilty about it. And other times I feel like, I really want to celebrate um, who I am and my life that has allowed me to be someone that could meet Yasser and who he is and how far he's come in his life. And I want to have that moment together. And the third reason is that, wow, did our moms want this wedding? My God, you guys. <laughs> our moms are on fire for this wedding. God, they want it so bad. And they want a big one a big wedding. And if someone's going to give them a big wedding, it's it's me and Yasser. And wow, now is it way too big. Um, but thank you for that question. Okay. And another question was, any career regrets or types of projects you wish you hadn't done? You know what? My biggest regret in life is um, sticking with the representation I had for so long because it's and it's so hard to even like I think if I if I heard me saying this when I was younger I'd be like shut up <laughs> like I'm not listening to you but I'm still going to say it which is the desperation to have representation agents and managers is so high that it outweighs whether it's good for you or not and it really is like dating and if you are with a bad partner bad boyfriend bad girlfriend for a long time like your life is probably not going well like and, and they are just as important as a role. So you like, you can't be with a bad boyfriend or, and you can't even just be with a boyfriend that's good, but maybe wrong for you. Like you have to be with your right partner. And I wish I had known that earlier and I had, uh, hadn't been afraid to be on my own for longer. Okay. Let's listen to another voicemail. Um, my question is to do with the Molly Shannon episode. Molly Shannon is a huge icon of mine. I knew a lot about her, but I did not know that her dad was a closeted gay man. But when I was listening to the book and she was describing his relationship with George, I believe his name was George, um, his really good friend and their dynamic, I suspected at that point in the book that he might actually have a relationship with George or that he might be closeted. So at the end of the book, I was really kind of relieved, but also thought it was very funny that I had suspected based on that relationship that he might actually be in the closet. So I wonder if any of the other cookies or you yourself at any point during the book while reading it before it was revealed that he might be gay, if in fact you suspected it before the big reveal. All right. Thanks so much. I love the podcast. I love you. I uh, can't wait for more episodes. Bye. 
Zachary, thank you. And now I love you too. Um, this was this is a phenomenal question. So I love that you suspected it. And I did not at all. And I think part of that is because um, when I was like 12 or 13, my mom moved in with her best friend, my godmother, and they raised me for a little while. And they were always like just thick as thieves, like always doing stuff together. And everyone in our small town would be like, they're lesbians. Um, And I was like, no, they're like very into men. It's a bummer. Um, just dating them, you know? And so I I just didn't, yeah, I didn't think about that relationship at all. In fact, I think I was thinking about my mom and my godmother. And I was like, oh yeah, like when you find another um, like best friend who you're kind of raising your kids with, that being said, definitely makes sense in hindsight. And in the book, Molly, what I loved is that she asked her dad about George of like, oh, were you having a relationship with George? Her dad was basically like, oh, no, no, no. I never had a relationship with George. And I have to say, I, d- I don't believe it. I think he couldn't tell Molly that he did um, or, or reveal his feelings. Um, but I I think that was maybe something he just wasn't ready for. You know, he was newly out and probably wasn't ready for that. Um, so I think he did have a relationship with George. And now I'm wondering if you think he did too or believed what he told Molly. We'll never know. Okay, let's listen to the next voicemail. Hi, Chelsea. This is Alice, and I am a fresher cookie to the batch. I joined, I want to say, February, March, and I love it. Um, The first book that I read uh, is Alexandra Billings' book, This Time for Me, a memoir, and this book changed me. I finished this book feeling so much stronger as an ally to the transgender community. I mean, prior to this book, I was very much, oh, yeah, love is love, and I, I, I want equality, but I understood on such a deeper reason why, and all I wanted to do was talk to my friends about this, which made me think on the larger scale, well, what if more people read books like this that took that deep dive into sort of the tough current issue, which begs the question for me, and this is something that I wanted to bring up, is can a celebrity book have a role in education? Anyway, so that's my big question. What is the role in celebrity books in having an education? Is there a place for them in classrooms? Are they too harsh? Are they, are they too, are they perceived as being too shallow? I, I don't know. Alice, hi. Thank you. Fresher cookie. Um, Thank you for this question. And also, once you get a little further back in the catalog, I know probably twice I went on a very long monologue about this, and I am thrilled to do it again. Um, No, I I genuinely believe that um, celebrity memoirs should be taught in school. And and I'm, I'm so serious about this that I guess if I ever did a TED Talk, I would hope it would be on this. Like, I think one of the books I ended up talking about this was um, Cicely Tyson's book, where like I actually retain a lot more about history and culture and different people when you read stories like that. The same way, like where if you have a friend who went through something, you're much more likely to remember those types of things. And like, like so many celebrity memoirs describe the moment that JFK was shot and the AIDS crisis and when MLK was shot and learning about culture through a human's lens and how it actually impacted their life is so much more relevant than just the sentence or the far away view on it. And then also I have to say like, so I've been reading these books for a long time and I really do attribute a lot of my education to them, (laughs) but my education both 
Uh, there's like a lot of facts I know because of them, but there's also just a lot of like maybe emotional intelligence that I learned about from the books before I learned about it in my life. And I think the reason why celebrity memoirs are so impactful is because when you're a celebrity, like you're a figure in culture. So the way that we can all look and discuss their lives and relate it so deeply to our own because they are currently creating our culture and currently creating how we view our worldview. And by dissecting their roles, we can like dissect culture in a way that you can't when it's not something, you know, somebody that everyone knows. Not to mention the way we treat female celebrities, just so different than how we treat male celebrities and the types of books they're even allowed to write. Like, you know, like I think Matthew McConaughey's is just like 19 pages of loose poetry and a weird dick story, you know? And then, and then you've got Viola Davis over here just like painstakingly pouring out the most beautiful, traumatic childhood and, and, resurgence through life. It's just like so different. Um, so yes, I, I, I totally agree with you. And that's also why I loved Alexandra Billings book. And I think it's just going to bring so much to so many people. I especially loved when she just explains like how to act when someone comes out as trans. Cause there's so many, you know, people in the world who like want to be an ally, but like, what do you do? And are you afraid to say the wrong thing? And she just laid it out of like, it's a celebration. So, you know, celebrate them. And I, I just love when things like that come through in books. And I love this question. Oh, okay, wait, hold on. Producer Kate wants to weigh in and say something. I just have to hop in because Chelsea, you know that outside of producing this podcast, I am a public speaking coach for scientists and doctors. And I help scientists like understand how to communicate with other humans better. Uh, and one of the biggest things that I always have to explain to them is that humans don't learn information by just getting the information and then changing the, what they do in their lives. Humans learn through stories, and stories work because of empathy. And I mean, this makes sense if you think about how information was shared, like, throughout human history— Obviously, our survival benefited from sharing information, but information wasn't shared by like, hey, here's a list of what berries to eat. It was like, hey, see that berry? I ate that berry and some bad shit happened to me. Don't do that. And so we would remember that because we got that information through a story from someone we trusted and knew very well. And literally, our brain chemistry retains information better. A chemical called oxytocin is released when we have a connection with the person who the story is about. The way that we retain information is social. And there's a dark side to this, which is like, it's very easy for people who we feel like we know and trust to mislead us or to give us incorrect information. And that's like how we get vaccine misinformation, but that's how we're supposed to learn. We're supposed to learn through these stories. Our minds don't get changed. Stuff won't stick in there if it's just information. It has to be connected to a story. So everything this person is that, saying makes total sense. Oh, my God. So we, we both have the same thesis in life, except yours is based in science. Um, and mine was based in somebody remembers. Kate, wait. Um, I love that. I mean, that truly, that's that's the thesis for everything. It's also why I love, even I love non-celebrity memoirs and I obviously love television and film and I'm a writer in it. And like the specificity and the storytelling like really does place a shift in life. Also the dark side of it. God, that's so fascinating. Okay. Kate's the best, you guys. Okay. Going to listen to another voicemail. Hi, Chelsea. Long time cookie. First time caller. 
my question is for you uh, along the lines of healing and uh, finding your own like self-discovery journey as you read these memoirs. I'm wondering what your process is if you simply read memoirs and reflect on them and come to some realizations about your own life, if there are any practices that you do, like journaling or talking to a therapist about Naomi Judd's memoir, for example. Um, anyway, thank you so much for all you do, and I love how hard you rep New Mexico. All right. See you later. Bye-bye. Oh my gosh. Thank you for this. Also, this call came from a 719 number. So I wasn't expecting the New Mexico shout out. I was expecting the Colorado shout out, which I also lived in Colorado, but I, I don't shout it out very much. Um, uh, th- what a great question. Um, so definitely have a side of this, <laughs> been very blessed to be in uh, therapy for the last like four or five years. Wow, that's fucking crazy to say. Um, With some sporadic and just wild other bouts of, I guess you can technically call it therapy, but I'm not sure much good was happening before that. Um, So definitely when I'm reading the books, I will, I will often have just like, you know, in reading it, realizations about my own life. And I also, I read with a pen, which is I read every book with a pen. I can't not read with a pen. Like I'm always underlining and writing notes, even if I'm not doing it on the podcast. But it's also a good reading tip. If you want to learn how to read faster um, and retain books, um, reading with a pen, it's just a hot tip. Um, But that is also helping me process the books because I'll make little notes in it. And then when I go back through to create these, the beat sheets that I make for the podcast, I can also like make more connections because I'm just kind of looking at the notes and the highlights. And... Oh, my poor therapist. The amount of books I have talked to her about. My God. I mean, (laughs) I will say there was one really, um, uh, there was one really huge week where my therapist was teaching me about, um, we know about flight, fight, and fawn, which I believe I talked about on the Rue McClanahan podcast, where we we know fights, we know flights, but fawn is something your girl suffers from, which is like, if you can just make everyone like you, then you'll be in less danger. Um, and But then creates just a terrible quality where you're just really concerned about people liking you who maybe don't deserve your time or you don't need their opinion and, you know, not being whole in yourself. Um, so we were talking about that. I was reading Rue's book. Rue had this thing in her book where she was like, just say, I'll think about it. Just say, I'll think, like, don't react in the moment. Just say, I'll think about it. And if you're a people pleaser, like, you just want to, you just want to make everyone happy. You never, like, slow it down. And so I was having this really intense kind of takedown with my, takedown. I was having this really intense dissection with my therapist while I was reading just this simple phrase of, just say, you'll think about it. Just say, you'll think about it. And, like, putting those two together, like, really did affect my processing. And and I've been practicing it. I've been doing it. Um and then, like, there, there's other things that take longer to process. Like, I still think about Gabrielle Union's first memoir quite a bit. Um, and she just has, like, a lot about humiliation and shame and and sexual violence in there. And, like, pieces will still come to me. And um, and I bring the books to my therapist quite a bit. And I, I feel like I'm—I feel like my therapy has— become reading the books in a way too, which is, which is new, new to the podcast, obviously. But like, I really feel like I'm always like processing the book's life, but then I also, you know, makes me think of my own and 505-719 forever. Okay. (laughs) Um, let's take a little break and I'm going to read some of the Instagram questions. 
Okay, so at Jesskuo asked, has a celebrity ever reacted to you reviewing their memoir? Yes! Oh, God, I hate it. God, if I could... If I could create something where I could do this podcast, but just ensure that the author of it never heard it, God, I would I would do it. So I say that because one, I think just offering your life up and reflecting on your life and writing a book is like such a huge offering and um, an accomplishment. And like for anyone to have anything to say about that, uh, you know, it's like, fuck off. Like this is their life. This is what they have to say. So you know, so I feel bad having a podcast where sometimes I reflect that I hate this book or I thought this was a very bad or I don't like the thing that happened that you said about your life. And so I wish I don't I don't ever want anyone to hear them because I just want them to enjoy that they gave their story up to the world, except, well, a couple of them. Actually, you know, there's a couple of them that I wish would have listened who probably didn't. But um, I have, let's see, Alexandra Billings, uh, listened to our entire podcast episode, said she had an amazing afternoon listening to it. And then she reposted all of the podcast quotes that I make on my Instagram and made a bunch of posts about it, which was so beautiful. Um, Mackenzie Phillips also listened to the podcast, gave a hot follow. Jennifer Lewis, she gave a listen and a little like. Uh, Lonnie Anderson, who I actually She'd gotten on Cameo, and I bought a Cameo from her, which we played on the podcast. And then she talked about the podcast on Andy Cohen's podcast, um, which I loved. Um, So, I mean, like, the books who we love, like, I I would love for the authors to hear the praise and, and women discussing their story. Books that I had criticisms on, God, I fucking pray they didn't listen. But I do believe if anyone wanted to come on and contest any of my opinions, uh, they would be more than welcome. And I I would, I'm not going to say love that, but I would definitely endure that because I, I would believe that's the right thing to do. At Signboy1 asked, how did me and Yasser meet? But actually, I'm not going to tell that story because you guys... He's coming on the podcast. It's locked and loaded, and uh, and we'll tell it then because baked into my podcast is the story of how we first met. So I guess Yasser and I will be talking about how we first met. Then Just Okay Online, who has just been an OG cookie, and I love their insights. They asked, what's the best non-celeb memoir book that I've read in the last year? This would be a tie between Long Live the Tribe of Fatherless Girls, which I have revisited. It's I didn't read it at this wasn't the first time I read it. I was revisiting it. I really, really love that one. And I am very late to the game. And I just read Educated this year over Christmas. And I loved it. I really, really loved that book. Okay, let's listen to another voicemail. Hi, Chelsea. Uh, this is Sarah. My question is about Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck. I am a huge Jennifer Lopez fan. I'm Puerto Rican. She's just you know, royalty to, to my mom and I. And we always felt like Ben Affleck was the one that got away for her. Um, and I remember in her book, you talking about how she said that it took, you know, five years or three years or something to get over Ben Affleck. But if you look at the timeline, she married Mark like six months after they broke up or something. And I'm just curious about your thoughts um, about J-Lo and Ben being back together, because I'm here for it. I don't usually think anyone should get back together with exes, but I love this. Um, I just want to know your thoughts. Oh my God. Yes. Okay. So like you said, she marries Mark like six months after they break up. But even, even more than that, Sarah, she runs into Mark like three days after the wedding is called off with Ben Affleck. And 
in the book, she says something like when she first met Mark, he said something like, you're the woman I'm going to marry, which by the way, I'm sure he said it to a lot of people. Like sometimes that's just a line people say. Sometimes they mean it. Really tough to tell the difference. But she, this is my take on it. I think she was so heartbroken from the marriage with Ben. And it was called off so close to the wedding. And she was so heartbroken by that relationship going away that when she ran into Mark, she could feel like it was supposed to happen, that it was fate. That if it was fate, she was always supposed to be with Mark, who she'd met so long ago, who said that he was going to marry her. Then it was okay that this Ben Affleck thing had happened where their publicity blew up and they went through so much hell only for it to go away, where everyone said they were right. That it was fate because she could end up with Mark. And I think the entire marriage to Mark was about like making it okay that Ben happened, which is why I was so excited when she was with Alex Rodriguez, though, in an unraveling of that relationship. I Obviously, hindsight helps you out, but now you look back and I'm like, oh, bummer. But really, I was just happy she'd like found someone to be happy with. And, oh God, one of my favorite parts of this podcast is Alex Rodriguez for Valentine's Day got Jennifer Lopez like 500 roses. And 500 roses all all together is like, is a shit ton of roses. It's an incredible Instagram photo. She puts it up on Instagram. She's like, 500 roses. I post it to my Instagram. This is what I love about the cookies. (laughs) Our resident cookie florist, who's actually gonna do some flowers for my wedding because we're DM friends, was like, hey, just so you know, those roses are like the trash roses of flowers. And that basically there's a certain type of rose that's like two cents and it's really easy to get them in bulk, which is why like these big rose arrangements are available. And she's like, and he's like Alex Rodriguez. So like 500 is cool, but like this really is just like, he just gave her a bunch of like the shittiest, cheapest, like bottom shelf flowers in quantity. And I was like, oh my God. Okay, which brings me to Ben. I'm fucking thrilled they're back together. I'm thrilled they're engaged. I love that she got a new engagement ring. I love that they went from pink to green. Um, I think it was what we needed in the pandemic. We all needed to believe that you could go back to your early 2000s, bro-y, maybe alcoholic ex, and they had made everything right, and they were good now, and that somehow true love uh, is available with your ex-boyfriend should you be publicly um, divorcing men constantly. And honestly, J-Lo can do literally whatever the fuck she wants. Like, she can go revisit Mark. She can revisit Alex. She can get married seven more times after this. I think she's crossed the threshold of, of, like, what would be too much. Like, we're already at too much. So, like, to infinity and beyond, baby. Sibling fights are unavoidable, but what if every fight you had was under a microscope on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince William and Prince Harry. They were each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother. But that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wondry's podcast, Disintel, is hosted by comedians Sidney Battle and Matt Balasai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle, or was it something that started much earlier? Follow Disintel on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. I started this podcast because I have been obsessed with memoirs my entire life, and I can't believe it, but I got to write my own, and it comes out on June 4th, and you can order it right now. 
The book, you know, I was asked to describe it and I said, it is an absolutely harrowing, traumatic memoir, but funny. So if that sounds good to you, order it. Let me give you some topics that are in this memoir. A female best friendship breakup. How I got my break into Hollywood. When I found out my dad was not my real dad. The time I dated a magician. Are those last two related? Who's to say? Read the book. Growing up in Utah. Growing up around cults. How I got into therapy. Listen, I could keep going. Each chapter title is a different woman's name in my life. Some are heroes. Some are motherfucking villains. But you know what? A villain and a hero, what are both of those things? A leading role. And we do love women in our leading roles. So pre-order the book. It matters a lot. I linked everywhere that you can buy it in the show notes, but you know, go anywhere. Also, I am reading the audiobook personally. So I'm personally narrating it. So if you like this podcast, get my longest podcast ever. And the audiobook is also available for pre-sale everywhere you get audiobooks. And thank you so much for listening to this podcast. You are the reason I got to write a memoir. So thank you so, so much. Okay. Um, before I get to this last voicemail, I'll answer just a couple more that came through on the Instagram. Here's a deep one. Says, do you keep in touch with the man you thought was your dad? Expecting no. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a good expectation. No, we have not spoken to each other in 17 to 20 years. I would have to stop to do the math, which I'm, it's going to take too long on this podcast in real time. Um, we have not spoken in a very long time. We did see each other. Um, probably seven years into that estrangement, but there was no talking to be had. And you know what? I'm actually writing, uh, I'm writing about it in my book. It involves a boat, a bottle of vodka at 11 a.m. And, uh, you know, just your regular old dad, he's not your dad tragedy. Um, oh, okay. Here's another dark one. This comes from at Jaunty Dame Music. They said Demi Moore's rapist claimed he'd paid her mother. Why believe a known rapist? Okay, so this is only going to make sense if you listen to the episode or read the book. This is a great insight. So Demi Moore was raped as a teenager. And then when she go, she and her mom go to move apartments, he's there helping them move. And he says to her that basically he paid her mom $500 for a key to their apartment. And the whole reason, not the whole reason, but a, a big part of how this happens is that when Demi Moore comes home to her house, he's waiting inside the house and he had gotten in somehow. So in the book, we're sort of led to believe that he paid her mom to do this. But here's what I will say to this. Um, I don't know if you're asking for me why I believe a known rapist, but if if the question is to me, because I believe this happened, it's more that um, I, I believe, like this, that Demi believed it. Like Demi grew up with her mom. He said this to Demi. She was there. In the book, I got the impression that while she would never know it was true, it was something that she felt was possible and possibly happened. And so that's in the books, like, especially with, um, especially with like trauma and assault, what's most important to me is just what the author, what the person who it happened to says happened. And this was part of Demi's reflection, though why Demi believed it, you have a great point with he is a known rapist, but there was so much other stuff with her mom that it seemed like she thought this could be true. Um, this is, But this is in a lot of these books because sexual violence is so prevalent, especially for women. 
There's so many times in these memoirs when you're reading about an assault that happened, but you're you're always reading the person's perspective. And especially when you go further back in generations, like in Cicely Tyson's book and um, other books where like sort of their take on the assault is written where the exact same set of events could happen to someone else and, and it could be written differently. And so I just like to pay attention to like what this woman is telling us about what happened in her life. But a great insight. And yeah, it, there's it's possible it wasn't true. Okay, let's do another one. Oh, okay, I actually, <laughs> I got this question so many times that I'm gonna answer it. Um, so how are you not exhausted all the time? Seriously, I do not understand how you do all this. I, I do get this question a lot and it makes me feel bad because I definitely don't want to promote hustle culture or, you know, um, you have the same hours in a day as Beyonce, which is like, yeah, but, you know, we don't have Beyonce's uh, trainers and entourage and nannies and stylists. So, you know, it's not a comparison. Um, but let's say, how about this? I have two answers to this question. One, they're both true. One's a happy answer. One's a sad answer. Um, I'll start. I'll start with the happy answer first. Um, I genuinely love it. It's. It's not. I know this is so gross. This is so gross. I'm so sorry. I genuinely love it. It's not. It's not really. It's not work to me. Um, and if it was, I definitely wouldn't do this podcast because I have another job, <laughs> and I and it's a job that takes up a lot of my time. Like I am. I am physically a television writer, and I have been for um, many years. And I'm a comedian, and um, and I make films, and so that's <laughs> that's a lot of time. I love doing this. It it makes me happy. It makes me feel grounded. It, it helps me like process my life. It helps me process pain. Um, and then really an, another big part of it is the cookies because then people like respond to me on my Instagram or I see reviews or people tag things and like your energy like gives me energy. And like, I just love what this has become. And, and it's been like so surprising to see like all these people gather around these themes and events and ideas. And now we're doing live shows and like, it just feels wonderful. And there has been times when I definitely cannot, uh, I shouldn't be doing this much. I'm like, oh, this is bad. I like, I need to stop this podcast. And there's been a few times I've come really close. And what always keeps me here is that like the cookies are here and they're talking to me and like we're in my DMs and you guys leave really nice reviews. And like, I, I like, I stay for that because it, I don't know, it just feels so amazing. Um, um, oh, okay. And then the sad answer, which I'll do quick, which I didn't know for a long time, but, um, and I try and be open about this stuff, so I'm trying to be open about it now. Um, when I found out that I had been living with CPTSD, one big part of that is that there's a certain uh, tributary that if you have this, you go into a lane where you just constantly work as a way to not be inside your own brain. <laughs> and when I read about that, I was like, oh, wow. Um, but I say that as like negative and positive because I really do think that's how I like— um, I don't, want, I don't know if survived is too strong a word, but like, that's just how I've like, it's how I've been seemingly okay for so long. Cause I just always had work and like, I definitely needed, um, to escape my brain. And I still constantly need to escape my brain. Like I don't want like pain and sadness, like overtake me. And when I am like reading books and processing things and making art, it's just, it feels, it feels fantastic fantastic. And sometimes that's a bad thing and I'm escaping myself. Sometimes it's a good thing. And my 
therapist always says the way to heal trauma is to make meaning out of it. And one of the ways you can make meaning is to make art. And so I just love making art and then it feels very healing. Okay, let's listen to the last voicemail. Hello, this is the Astrology Cookie. My name is Sally. Um, I looked at Kirstie Alley's astrological chart after hearing the episode and noticed that she was born on the same day and the neighboring state of the late conservative talk show host Rush Limbaugh. And so their astrological charts are very similar. And it led me to start thinking about many of the parallels in their lives. For example, the planet that rules communication is opposed by the planet that loves to startle and shock, giving them each a love or a zest for expressing their opinions and stirring up controversy. Um, their conservative Capricorn sun is in challenge to the planet that rules deception, but also ideology, idealism. They each have embraced a strong ideology, Kirstie Scientology and Rush Limbaugh conservatism, which ended up defining really who they are as people and how we perceive them. Their relationship planet is in the free love sign of Aquarius, giving them a disinclination to settle down with just one person for life. Um, in fact, Rush Limbaugh was married four times, and after listening to the Kirstie episode, I really lost count of how many relationships she's blown through. And finally, they each have a strongly amplified moon, which rules popularity, giving them that drawing power to bring many devoted fans to them. However, the moon also rules food, and that amplified moon gives them a huge appetite for indulging in rich and delicious food. But that moon is opposed by the planet that loves austerity and discipline. And so we find that um, they go through, they have kind of a seesaw effect, times when they diet very publicly and lose weight and other times when they totally blow it and indulge in all the foods that they love as much as they want all the time and become very huge. So anyway, that's my hot take on Christy Alley and her birthday twin, Rush Limbaugh. And speaking of birthdays, happy return of the sun to you, Chelsea, and thanks so much for this podcast. When I see a new episode has dropped, it truly lights up my day. Take care, everyone. Bye. Sally, wow, thank you. So Sally has actually um, sent me messages on the Patreon of of um, celebrities' astrology charts, and they're so fascinating. And Sally, anytime you send me one, I'm now going to start posting them um, because one really beautiful way to look at astrology is in hindsight. So looking at celebrities whose books you've read and because people are like, oh, astrology, like that's not real. But like, oh my God, you just heard what Sally said. Okay, so first I want to call something out very specific. A lot of people don't realize that your geographic location of when you were born highly affects your astrological chart. So if you don't know the exact time you were born or at least close to the exact time you were born or where you were born, oftentimes your astrological readings, those are in like broad strokes. That's where you get sort of the, you know, in a newspaper, like what's happening to the Taurus this month. But if you get really, really specific to exactly where the stars are and exactly where you are, that's where you get these really detailed takes, uh, which I know all this because I grew up with astrologists. And Sally, I can tell you're a phenomenal one. Um, and I love that you do the opposing planets. That is so specific. Um, and 
Wow, I believe it. Rush and Kirsty. Yes, I see them as similar, and they are quite the characters. I loved this. Okay, so now I'm going to share a little mini memoir, a memoir story from my life. On last year's episode, I truly did something life-changing for myself, which is that I had finally come to a place where I was ready to share something um, that really burdened uh, my life, and I had a lot of shame around it. And sharing it not only helped the my inner organs <laughs> find peace and happiness, but it really helped me open up to a place where I could start to do some domestic violence and gun violence advocacy work. I got to do an episode on Jon Stewart's show where it was really, it was a domestic violence episode that really, really means a lot to me, but also a side of that. It's just a really impactful solution that's on the table. And I wouldn't have been in the place to be the head writer on that episode or manage a bunch of people as we were going through that had I not found a way to be open and share about that part of my life. So that started on this podcast. So thank you for that. And if you need the little push to do your own trauma work and share your own story, maybe just writing it in a journal or sharing it with a therapist, I am that voice letting you know that, my God, did it really help me when I finally did it. And last year, I promised on the episode, if I did another memoir, I would do a lighter story, something a little more lighthearted. And so that is what I'm gonna do now. So this story that I'm going to tell you is possibly going to be in the book I'm writing. So I'm writing a book. It's a bunch of essays. It's memoir-ish. It's like a comedy girl memoir, except, as you guys know, I have very strong opinions on these books. And so I'm putting everything into this book that I always hope for whenever I open up a memoir. Memoirs have just had such a profound effect on my life, and the good ones are just so life-changing that I'm— I'm trying to put everything I can into my book that I always love in these books. And so that's what's going to be in the book. It's coming out uh, next fall, 2023. Now, this story, apropos to this podcast and what I was just talking about, the story I'm thinking of writing is basically all the times when celebrity memoirs really had a specific impact in my life. Because there's a handful of moments that a celebrity memoir actually uh, highly affected something I was doing. So I'm just going to share a part of that larger essay, and I've never shown this to anyone. It's beyond a first draft. I wrote it down, and this is it. It's a a hat exclusive for the cookies. If it stays in the book when the book is published, maybe you can see how much it changed. And if it doesn't go in the book, here is a little piece of something I once considered including. When I was 25, I was dating a man who was 13 years older than me. Can it get any worse than that? Yes, it can. He was a magician. But can it get any worse than that? Yes, because he wasn't a successful magician. No, no, no. He was an aspiring magician. It was his side dream. His main career was much more respectable. He was an improviser. When we started dating, I thought the fact that this older man who was so much farther along in the comedy career I was hoping for made him someone to admire. And the fact that he would risk his reputation to date someone young and barely starting out meant that I was just that special. I had a pretty bad track record in choosing partners up to that point. 
In baseball, you would call my batting average a negative 1,000 or whatever the term for she keeps hitting herself in the face with that baseball bat is. But this guy, I thought maybe this guy was different. He was charismatic. He wore slacks. My mom and my stepdad loved him. I mean, was it because they could relate to him better because he was closer to their age? Who knows? But he balanced his checkbook. He had old school manners and he even seemed kind of shy. So when this successful man showed interest in me, I thought maybe the problem this whole time had been that I had been dating people my age, when instead maybe I was an old soul who should have been dating someone older than me who had the potential to be a middle manager. The power imbalance was so large that it took me a long time to realize that it was weird that he was adamant he become the director of my sketch shows that I was currently the director of, or that between the two of us, I was the one with stable housing. I guess I started to notice that maybe things were off when he broke down in tears when I didn't use the joke he suggested in a monologue I had written. A few months into the relationship, he told me he needed to know if I would marry him, and he needed to know now. We were on two different life timelines, and it was time I joined his. Around this time, I was reading Rachel Dratch's memoir titled Girl Walks Into a Bar. I was initially pouring through it for any crumbs of comedy info that could help me succeed, but I found myself drawn to something else entirely. Inside the book, Rachel's talked about learning about the art of manifestation. Specifically, she said you could practice manifesting by first asking for something small from the universe, like a sign. She said you could ask a question to the universe and tell it what you needed to see if the answer was yes or the answer is no. So I gave it a whirl. I was sitting on the bus stop bench waiting to make my transfer to get to my second job as a nanny. I closed my eyes and said to myself, if I'm supposed to dump this guy, I want to see a white feather. And if I'm supposed to stay with him, I want to see a butterfly. The signs seemed to choose themselves as they came to me in the little prayer I was whispering to God, the divine, and Rachel Dretch. I stayed in the meditation for a few minutes until the bus pulled up and jarred me out of it. The door whistled open and out of the bus stepped a woman in a full floor-length muumuu, very blousy. And the fabric of that muumuu was a black background with a pattern of 1,000 white feathers. I mean, just hundreds of white feathers came cascading towards me as she exited the bus. I had asked for a subtle sign, and this woman appeared in a dress that said, Run, bitch! The intensity and immediacy of my sign appearing gave me the courage to face this older authority figure and politely ask that he stop dating me. I called him from the basement of the house I was nannying in after the kids had gone to bed, and in hushed tones began the breakup. And this older gentleman responded to me breaking up with him by saying, okay, but you gave me an STD. Now, if you've made it this far in the book or listened to the Jessica Simpson podcast episode, you know that I had a seven and a half pound tumor removed when I was 22. So every six months at this point, I was getting scans and checkups and full-on STD panels just to make sure that everything was okay. And as recently as a month ago, it had all come back clear. 
But that's the thing about being 25 and dating a 38-year-old man. My brain was malleable, and he was a blonde, balding authority figure. So in my heart, I thought, maybe I did have an STD. Maybe it was a super STD. I mean, everything about sex is so scary in your 20s that I thought that even though I had only monogamously been with this dumbass for months, maybe I had a long-term STD that escaped the panels, or it was dormant, a dormant STD I got in that moldy hot spring when I was 16 and it just now showed up. I thought back to the last guy I had slept with before my old ass boyfriend. I mean, I did meet that guy on a cruise ship, which does feel like the first sign someone has an STD, so maybe it was possible? Flinging this information at me was a genius move on his part because instead of breaking up with him, I demanded to see him as soon as possible. What happened next probably surprised him though, because I had the power of Rachel Dratch's 1,000 white moo feathers behind me as I sat this nearly 40-year-old man on my bed and said, show me your dick. You see, I had found out it's not like he had taken a test. No, no, he just said he saw something strange and had a feeling it was an STD. So I said, okay, let's figure it out. You're gonna have to show me your dick. Finally, I got this man to show me his dick, probably setting a record for the longest amount of time a man withheld his penis from a young woman asking for it. So there I sat, platonically inspecting my boyfriend's dick on my bed, which wasn't so much a bed, but a mattress sitting on the floor. Somewhere in the back of my head, I heard Rachel Dratch laugh, bitch, how many signs do you need? My boyfriend pointed to the STD in question. It looked like a small freckle, not even a raised freckle, just like a tiny, slightly darker spot on his dick. When he saw the look of incredulity on my face, he angrily snapped, it's new. He said that since I had given him this new spot on his dick, it was pretty cruel of me to break up with him and throw him into the streets. I guess this is where I tell you that he had planned on giving up his sublet and moving in with me and my three female roommates in the next few weeks to save on rent. His little STD move had worked. I was back, entangled in it with him, trapped and scared. And as we waited for his test results, I resolved to marry this man. I mean, he told me I had burdened him with a disease. It was only right. I was morally obliged. He would frequently remind me that he was in a powerful position in our little comedy community, and I, being 25, was pretty much chum. He had all the power in the relationship, which was ironic because this man did not even know where to go to get an STD test. So as I walked my grown-ass boyfriend into Planned Parenthood because he didn't believe that boys could go too, I thought of the thousand white moo-moo feathers. A week later, we got the full panel of his test results back. The results? His super STD that his young, whorish girlfriend had given him was an age spot. (laughs) It was an age spot. (laughs) In retrospect, I do believe my vagina caused it. Finally, he was out of town for a show a few weeks later. So I knew he couldn't drive to my apartment and pound on the door to talk. And so it was my time to make my move. 
I called him during a show he was performing so that it would go to voicemail. I told his message machine it was over and then refused to answer my phone when he called back. He left me two voicemails where he's screaming at the top of his lungs and crying, saying horrific things. I thought I had learned this lesson already to not choose partners like this, and I had to ask myself, why was I here again? Only in retrospect do I know the answer. I was here because I never saw it coming. That's what happens when you assume someone knows better than you because of their job or wealth or age. I had thought an older boyfriend wouldn't be capable of being a shithead. After all, he was older, and when you get older, you learn things, right? But that's where his magic lay the entire time. You can't date someone wise enough to know all your tricks. That's why magicians are best at kids' parties, because kids believe in magic. And he knew what he was doing when he chose me. And as I would later discover, I wasn't his only young girlfriend like he had shyly told me. No, no, I was one of many. And the ones after me got hotter and younger every time. It turns out this man was actually an incredible magician with the age-old magic trick, make a hot woman disappear and then reappear. I still have those voicemails he left me where he promises me he'll make sure I never work again. I thought of him when I sold my first TV show and I whispered a thank you to Rachel Dratch. Okay, that's it. That was the memoir and that was this year's Cookies Ask Me Anything episode. Thank you guys so much for being here for this journey, for writing reviews, for being members of the Patreon, for talking to me on Instagram. I just cannot emphasize enough how much this podcast and you guys changed my life and I just will, I'll be saying it till the end of time. So I will see you next year for who knows what the fuck story I'll be reading then, but we'll be doing another one of these each year. So I'll see you then. A huge shout out to our amazing producer, Kate Downey. She has been with us ever since we went independent and she's so incredible. And our episode engineer, DJ Bouncy House. He is just the best. Next episode, we are returning to another juicy book recap and I'll see you then.